over to you, Christian. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah, for that lovely introduction and the opportunity to present today. Um, look, I'd like to start with a bit of a warning, if I may. I have a reputation for looking at things differently. So sometimes people don't like what I have to say because I don't look at the traditional things in the same way. But just to get today started, let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever been made aware of an incident where your first thought was, oops, let me just have a look here. What were they thinking? Now, maybe an incident similar to one of those three pictures that you see in front of you. I was involved in incidents that were similar to those. Obviously, the people are, are, are slightly different. But when we did the investigation, what we found was we found that good people sometimes do silly or stupid things. Now, what were they thinking is not a bad question to ask. It's not easy, an easy question to answer. An easier question to answer is what were they not thinking about? And as far as I can remember, um, most of the time that I've sort of talked to people about safety, um, what it was believed or it was thought that safety was caused by bad thinking. Brain science is showing that bad thinking is not the main problem. The main problem is a lack of thinking. And it's a lack of thinking about what can potentially hurt us. Now, lack of thinking manifests itself as inattention. And as Sarah mentioned, so I got interested in that about 15 years ago. And sometimes people use different words for inattention. They use things like miscalculations, misjudgments, mistakes, even human error. These are all words for one thing and one thing only. And that is being human. Now, the reason why I first got interested in inattention was because we were having work incidents and the majority of the work incidents, the people had used the system correctly. They had identified the hazard, they had identified the control properly, and yet they still had an incident. And we were seeing an increasing trend of people having incidents with things that were meant to be there. You know, poles, people running into poles that were tripping over gutters, um, they were they were sort of running into fixed um, fixed equipment, sometimes even simple things like furnitures or doors as well. Um, so when we started looking at, at inattention, um, we sort of so when we asked, most people acknowledged that inattention exists, that that's not the issue. Um, but when I started asking questions about, you know, what can we do to make people more attentive? Uh, most people threw their hands up in the air and said, Christian, this all happens in people's heads. There is nothing we can do. Now, that is not true. What we now know is the systems and leadership, they've been good for safety so far, but they do very little to help people become more attentive. And it wasn't until I started getting into brain science that I started to appreciate the main causes of inattention and what we might be able to do about them. So what does Habit Safe do? Well, we use brain science to improve safety by minimizing inattention. And we do, we teach people how to detect and be on guard against the causes of inattention. We help people build attention enhancing habits to avoid incidents. And I'll talk a little bit more about those two things a little bit later. And we work with leaders to achieve sustainable behavior change. Because if it's not sustainable, we're not really all that interested. So that's what we do. And that's what we all do. We don't um, 
unravel or destroy anything that you've already got in place. What we do is we still use it and give it a minimizing inattention aspect to it. So let's look at the safety journey so far, where, where we've been. Uh, a total risk for physical safety um, is distributed between three things we find. So sometimes it's the work, sometimes it's the, what's happening around the work, the workplace, or the worker. So Sarah, can I get you to please run the poll? Yep, just a moment. No worries. Hopefully you can see that. Okay. We'll just give them a few seconds. Mm -hmm. So in the last 50 years, where has most of the focus been to improve physical safety? So have we focused more on the work, the workplace, the worker, or a combination of one and two? And obviously the work is about the hazards that are associated with the task. The workplace, it's the hazard that's going on around the task and maybe leadership and sort of ways that people can influence. Um, the worker is about what's going on inside people's heads at the time. And the last option is a combination of one and two. Okay, we're just about there. Okay, I'm no worries. Share the results now. Okay, so that's typically what we find when we run this, this exercise with, with leadership. Some people say it's the worker, but the majority of people say either it's the work or the workplace. So if, you, if I do the sums right, 82% don't think it's the worker, it's somewhere else. And that's really what we found most of the time. So the focus to date is either in the work or the workplace. Now, if we look uh, at the Australian work fatalities between 1980 and 2020 for the last 40 years, what we see is we see there's been no improvement for the last eight years, at least since 2013. Nobody seems to be able to explain 2018, so I'll just leave that there as statistical uh, variation. Even though we're doing the same thing that we've done for the last 30, 40 years, we do more of it and we do it better than ever before. So it looks like, well, at least it appears to me, that we are stuck in a zone of diminishing returns. And I'm not going to argue that we don't need to do the things that we've done in the past. But if the trend is telling us that it's the continuing to doing those things isn't taking us anywhere, then we really need to do something else. So what got us here is not taking us to the next level. Um, and if you think about what we've been doing over the last 40 years or so, um, and we call traditional safety, it tends to land on three things. Fix the environment, so eliminate the hazard or provide some training if the, if the hazard can't be eliminated, some controls. Improve the system. Uh, so you either sort of fill in the holes or you sort of make it a bit more simple or you get people to think more about safety. Now, doing these three things, it helped us get to where we are, but it's not helping us get anywhere else. So it can't be all that we do. So what more could there possibly be? That's the question that we asked ourselves about 10 years ago. The key is to understanding how people make poor in the moment decisions. So like the pictures that I showed you previously, 
those came down to poor in the moment decisions by, by those individuals. Now, the good news is that poor in the moment decisions are surprisingly predictable. Uh, we know what causes people to make those poor in the moment decisions. So let me give you some examples of some other poor in the moment decisions. And when you're talking about inattention, it's not something that just happens in the workplace. So we look at this from a 24 seven perspective. Um, so let me tell you about a friend of mine, um, an accountant, um, the most risk adverse person I know, one of the three most boring people I know, never had a parking ticket. Uh, we were picking up his daughter from preschool. Um, we were both in the car. He was running really, really late, made a right-hand turn in front of a truck, almost got us both killed. The only thing that I remember is the sound of the screeching tyres and the horns that came at us. But fortunately for us, nothing happened. When I stepped back and I thought about this, um, but why would somebody so risk adverse, so conservative, do something so out of character in a moment of hurry? It didn't make any sense at all. Or another example is the mining engineer in the Bowen Basin who had night shift, felt really tired, and he still ended up driving home. Now, I spoke to him. He had fatigue management training. He had seen all the ads on TV that I had seen. He even said to me that he had seen the signs on the road as he was driving home. Now, fortunately for him, he went off the road, but nothing bad happened. He knew all the risks, yet he still did it. Or, worse still, is the, the parent, the caring parent, that texts while driving while the kids are in the car. Now, I talk to a lot of truck drivers, and they tell me that that is quite common. Now, the parent knows that it's illegal. It knows, so he or she knows that it increases the risk considerably, yet they still do it. Don't they care about their kids? So what we find is we find that you know, in society, we have rules, we have awareness campaigns, we have signs on the side of the road to help people not do these things, but people still do them. And in these three scenarios and countless others, the conscious mind is fully informed. The conscious mind is fully informed, yet people still do it. Now, as it turns out, there are more forces at play that influence what we do that we knew nothing about until recently. So this is so new information. A lot of it has come about in the last 15 years, some of it in the last 10 years, and, and some of it even sort of in the last five years or so. And the issue that we have, or the problem as we see it, is that safety has relied too much on the conscious mind to influence people's behavior to be safer. And not enough consideration has been given to what we actually know is going on in the brain. So new research maps brain activity as it happens. So you're probably familiar with an MRI. If you go to the doctor, he sends you off for an MRI. That is a picture he gets back, he or she gets back. They look at what's going on, they diagnose the problem, and then they give you a treatment. What you're probably not familiar with is an fMRI, a functional MRI. And a functional MRI maps blood flow as it happens. So a brain scientist 
can know what's going on in the brain under different circumstances. So think about this. For the first time in human history, we're able to see inside the brain as things are happening. It's a real game changer. So for instance, if we put somebody's head into an fMRI and show them a picture of a snake, their amygdala lights up like a Christmas tree. Why? Because that's the fear center of the brain. Now, what we're also learning is that brain chemicals come into play at crucial moments, like when we're rushing, frustrated, or fatigued. And other brain chemicals help us uh, pre-program our autopilot responses. And these brain chemicals, they control what we do to an extent we never imagined and help us explain why people make such poor in the moment decisions. But it all happens below our level of conscious awareness. And because it happens below our level of conscious awareness, we give it absolutely no credit at all. But brain science is clear. There's lots of brain science on this. It shows that up to 95% of what we do originates in the subconscious. Up to 95% of what we do originates in a place that we're not aware of. So that begs the question, uh, which mind drives behavior? So we've got a conscious mind, and according to brain science, that's sort of good for 5% of the time. Behind it, we've got a subconscious mind, and that's where most of our habits tend to live. Now, both of these minds can influence behavior, uh, but the subconscious mind is much more powerful. Problem is that we're only aware of that one, so that's all we think there is. Now, when the subconscious mind drives behavior, what we get with it is inattention. So let's have a look at the main subconscious drivers of human behavior and how they cause inattention, because different drivers affect inattention in different ways. So we know that rushing leads to poor in the moment decisions. So let me ask you, when you're rushing, what are you thinking about? What most people tell us is they're thinking about doing it quicker, getting there faster. If you're thinking about doing it quicker or getting there faster, what are you not thinking about? You're not thinking about what's going on right here, right now. And that leads to inattention. We also know that frustration leads to poor in the moment decisions. So let me ask you, when you're frustrated, what are you thinking about? Now, the most common answer we get here is killing someone. Not the most sophisticated of answers. A better answer is whatever is causing you to become frustrated. So if you're thinking about whatever is causing you to become frustrated, what are you not thinking about? Well, you're not thinking about what's going on right here, right now. And if you're not thinking about what's going on right here, right now, that's how inattention gets in. So if we ask the question, what's going on in our brain when we're rushing or get frustrated? Chemicals? in our brain, and I'm talking about things like adrenaline and cortisol, what they do is that they cause the conscious mind to be temporarily sidelined. 
So adrenaline and cortisol, what they do is they restrict blood flow to the prefrontal cortex. That's the bit just behind you know, our forehead here. That's our conscious mind. Uh, that's where, where we control what we do. Uh, and they only allow enough, enough blood to get through in order to keep the brain cells alive, but not enough blood in order for them to operate. So essentially what happens is that they shut off that part of the brain. And it's a leftover from, you know, when we feel in danger and, and what we had to do when, when we had to survive, you know, 10,000 years ago. What that does to us, though, is we become tunnel vision about the outcome or we become obsessed with what gets in our way. And that results in inattention. And sometimes it's considerable inattention. Uh, most of that happens through impulsivity. So what happens is our reasonableness filter gets thrown out temporarily. And give you an example, you know it doesn't help to scream at the kids, but it's very difficult to stop yourself from doing it. That's not about psychology or culture. That's about human brain or neurobiology. That is part of the way that we're wired. We also know that fatigue leads to poor in the moment decisions. So if we ask what is going on in our brain when we're fatigued, brain use. Uh, and you can see the little dots appearing there in the, in the picture of the brain. Brain use generates waste products that clog up the neural networks. So every cell in our body uh, burns fuel with oxygen in order to generate energy, and there are waste products. In the body, we have a lymphatic system that takes that away continually. Uh, in the brain, the lymphatic system doesn't get in there because it's, it's too concentrated. So we get more of a buildup during the day. What does that cause? That causes us to paying attention becomes increasingly more difficult and we begin to make poor in the moment decisions. Uh, in other words, our brain becomes to turn to mush a bit. Uh, now sleep and rest clean out our brain. So the way that we get rid of those waste products is just this flushing effect when we have a good night's sleep. So that's why you feel refreshed and full of energy. If you haven't had a good night's sleep, you get up and you feel a bit foggy. That's the reason why, is because that flushing hasn't, hasn't sort of been completed. Um, and we also know that autopilot leads to poor in the moment decisions. So what's going on in our brain when we're in autopilot? Autopilot is a preferred operating mode of the brain because it is fast and uses minimal energy. What is familiar to us feels safe and that allows habits to take over. So the conscious mind is really good when things are new, novel or different, and we need to focus. But it's slow and it uses a lot of energy. So our brain only uses it when it's absolutely necessary. According to measurements from brain science, about 5% of the time. Habits are much more efficient way to get things done. But when we use habits, we don't think consciously about what we're doing and that results in inattention. Now, autopilot is the biggest source of inattention, but most of the time it tends to be relatively mild. So what have we... Oh, sorry, I can't see that thing there. Okay. So we've looked... So what we have found is that we have looked at um, lots of different safety approaches that we have seen with clients and, and with different organizations we have visited. And what we have found 
is that there is not nearly enough to help people deal with these drivers. Because different situations, different life situations achieve different, um, activate the different drives. So when we have, when we're doing something new, novel or different, then we need to focus. So our brain turns up our conscious mind and we need conscious control. When we're short of time or something's in our way, then rushing and frustration determine what we do and the brain science associated with that. When we're low of energy, it's a question of fatigue. And when we're doing something familiar and it feels safe, it's a question of autopilot. Now, these four drivers are responsible for almost 100% of what we do. Now, traditional safety is focused on the top one, which is 5% of what determines behavior. So I think it's time that we started looking at the other three drivers that sort of drive so much of what we do, because that's what the latest science is trying to tell us. We need a whole of brain approach. So if we're serious about safety, it makes sense to use everything at our disposal. We're not going to change the trend by continuing to do what we have always done. We need a whole of brain approach to get to the next level. So what's next on the safety journey then? Let me ask you a question. Are people getting better at paying attention? If you think that that is true, can I respectfully suggest to you that maybe you're off with the pixies because there's lots of science on this. Our attention span is getting shorter and we are task switching more often. And both of those things end up leading to more inattention. And inattention is a modern day problem. It's not just to do with work, it's to do with all things that people do. And it will only get worse if we don't address it. The good news is that inattention is predictable and there's a pattern to it. Uh, we refer to it as the inattention pattern and it's in play in 95% of incidents. So when inattention is in play and we ask ourselves, what are the main causes of inattention? The big one is autopilot, but we also got rushing frustration and fatigue. We refer to them as the attention disruptors. When the attention in, in, uh, disruptors are in play and we're inattentive, we increase the chances of an incident. If we're gonna have an incident, the big three are these. Line of fire, slip, trips and falls or overexertions. When we do train, we ask people to think of a time when they got hurt or almost got hurt, and we ask them if this is in play. And the majority of the time it is. And we also sort of give them a bit of practice to pick which attention disruptors in play. So if I, if I play this video, tell me which attention disruptor do you think is in play here? There's one. So inattention doesn't discriminate, it's equal opportunity. Uh, most people would guess that it's autopilot. But let me just go back. I'm gonna do it again, but we're gonna do it slightly differently. Now, instead of you focusing on the people that had the incident, the people that tripped on that yellow thing, what I want you to do is I want you to focus on the people that you see in the middle of the video screen right now. There's a man and a lady to her, to her right-hand side. So is there an attention disruptor associated with them? Now you will notice there is no incident. Huh? But they look backwards as they're walking. The only difference between them and the people that had the incident is the people that had the incident had that yellow thing. 
neither of them were looking in front of them, but one had an two had an incident and the other two did not. So most people can think that that's also autopilot, but it did not lead to an incident. So let me ask you a question. And this is the most important question that we ask when we do training. When we're inattentive, what's the most common safety consequence? What most people say is an incident of some kind. But an incident of some kind is not the right answer. So if an incident of some kind is not the right answer, what's the right answer? The right answer is no incident at all. So think about it this way. If every time you were inattentive, you had an incident, what would you teach yourself to do? You would teach yourself whatever you needed to do to be more attentive. But if most of the time when you're inattentive, there is no incident, then we repeat the inattention and it ends up in our habits without us even knowing about it making inattention a huge blind spot for leaders as well as for workers. And what we know for sure is that if it's a blind spot, we don't even know it exists. We do nothing about it. So the biggest obstacle to improving safety as we see it is that most people think inattention is only ever present when an incident takes place. Because that fits their experiences reasonably well. So they say to themselves, if nothing happened, then I must have been attentive. If something happens, then obviously there was a lapse of attention. That's why the incident happened. That's what they tell themselves. And that's consistent with their experiences. Problem is that that's not really what's happening at all. It's very difficult for us to be 100% attentive to everything because our attention is limited. Uh, sometimes we choose where our attention goes. Most of the time it's allocated subconsciously or automatically, if you like, and it's tied into our habit. So the reality is this, our attention is going up and down during the day based on which of the four attention disruptors in place and the severity of each, because that could change in, with, with severity as well. Uh, but the majority of the time when we're inattentive, there isn't a hazard in front of us. So that's why we don't have many incidents. Sometimes there is a hazard in front of us. Uh, we tend, sometimes we tend to see it early enough to be able to avoid it. And that's the majority of the times. And other times we're lucky, very seldomly do we actually come into contact with the hazard itself. We talk to people about inattention being part of life. And when we're inattentive, we surrender control of our safety. So we use the word surrender because we want people to understand that they lose control of their safety when they don't really have to. Now, when we're inattentive, that does not mean that we're going to have an incident. We just increase the chances of having one. The alternative is that we could keep control of our safety by upgrading our habits to attention enhancing ones. So the things that we do with people is to give them more control over what happens to them. And the feedback that we're getting is that that not only helps them avoid incidents, but it also helps with their psychological safety because a lot of people get anxious when they think they have no control. 
So there's the conventional model for safety. And you know, if you have safe behavior, which happens frequently, you get a safe outcome. And if you have unsafe behavior, which happens infrequently, you get an unsafe outcome. And in safety, the game we play is we're trying not to have any of those. The way to do that is we prevent bad thinking uh, or we encourage good thinking. Problem with this model is that it's limited uh, and it's only valid for conscious decisions which is 5% of the time. So this is classic old school thinking. The idea that all conscious, that the all behavior is conscious or can be made to be conscious is out of date, but it's really common. And lots of people think that that's the way it is. Why? Well, because we live in a monkey see monkey do world. And that idea has been around for 40, 50 years. So it's familiar and we tend to accept it without really questioning. And that was fine up until 10 years ago, but now we know better. Brain science has shown us that there is another aspect to behavior and it's not just conscious. So the problem um, with the conventional model is that it offers more of the same. So traditional safety that got us here, fix the work environment. Now, it's always good to eliminate hazards, but what we're seeing is that an increasing number of incidents for things that are meant to be there. Gutters, poles, doorways, doors, you know, furniture, that kind of stuff. How do you eliminate a gutter? How do you eliminate a doorway? So it's got its limits. The other thing is about improving the system. Now we've done about 200 incident investigations and all, all but one did not use the system properly. Uh, and when we go and talk to organizations, we say, as far as the incidents are concerned, was the, the system used? And a lot of the times what they're finding is that they're having incidents and the hazard was correctly identified, uh, the control was correctly identified, so they had used the system properly, yet the incidents still happen. Or we get people to think more about safety. Now we know that behavior is mostly driven subconsciously. So I'm good with the fact that we need to continue to do these three things, but that's not all that we need to do. We need something else. To get to the next level, we need a whole of brain approach. And fortunately for us, brain science is helping us to, to look at things differently. So a different model, uh, which is sort of based on the subconscious is driving most of our behavior, and in, in the scientific community, there's no debate about this at all. Uh, it's accepted there's enough science on this, uh, but safety is still ignoring it. So if the model is that these four attention disruptors cause inattention, most of the time when we're inattentive, we get to a safe outcome. Infrequently, we get an unsafe outcome. Uh, and what we try and get people to appreciate is that within attention, incidents are not common. That's the blind spot that I mentioned earlier on. And with, when you look at the incidents themselves, what we find is that inattention is present in 95% of the incidents. So if we play the safety game that we're all trying to play, which is not to have any of these, then we need to minimize inattention. And we do that by getting people to manage those four attention disruptors better. What's most appealing about dealing with the subconscious? Well, everyone can own the whole system. People go, well, how can that be? Well, because they carry it in their heads wherever they go. So we talk to people about wiring sort of you know, attention enhancing habits. 
into what you automatically do. The other thing is that people are motivated to keep doing it. Why? Well, because it helps those they care about stay safe and in the process keeps themselves safe also by teaching somebody that they care about. So the stuff that we teach people, it's not rocket science. You can teach it to a kid that's 10 years old easily enough. I started working with my kids when they were six. And I've heard of other people that have taught some of the stuff that we teach them to their kids when they're sort of six, seven and eight years old. So it's not a difficult thing for people to learn. And the earlier you start with the people that you care about, the more likely they are to get good at it quickly. So managing the attention disruptors is not do it yourself. And the reason why it's not do it yourself is because what we're dealing with here is the subconscious mind. And all that I have seen in the last 40 years in safety have dealt with the conscious mind. So, you know, people say to me, wow, but it seems simple enough for people to do it for themselves. And that's true. It does seem simple enough, but the reality is that they don't do it for themselves. So the solution involves knowing what to do, and that's easy. That's 10% of the effort. The real challenge is getting it wide into the subconscious so it happens automatically. So knowing what to do is about the what, getting it wide is about the how. And when we do the training, the way that we explain it to people is this way, because a lot of the times people think that, oh, now that I know what causes inattention, I'm going to be more attentive. And we go, well, that's not the way it works. So what we say to them is knowing that exercise keeps you fit or makes you fit doesn't make you fit. Doing the exercise makes you fit. And if you can get yourself to do the exercise habitually, it'll be easier to stay fit longer. So the whole game for us is not about the what. Uh, you've got to get the what right. It's mostly about the how. Uh, and the how, in order to do the how well, you have to understand how the subconscious works and how to influence it. So what we've done is we've designed a whole of brain process to help people be automatically safer. And we based it on brain science because it's the only discipline that can actually see inside our heads to know exactly what's going on. Uh, other disciplines have been guessing from the outside in. Sometimes they get it right. Other times we're not so sure. So how do we do it? Well, we have three sessions. The first one is to show people that inattention is part of life and skill them to look for it so they can see it more often. So if you like, we're trying to provide an antidote for that blind spot that we all have. The second step is to skill people to deal with rushing, frustration, and fatigue. Now, we do this next not because most incidents involve rushing, frustration, or fatigue. A fair few do. But it's because that's what gets in the way to people changing their habits to safer ones. So what we're asking people to do, the reason why we do rushing, frustration, and fatigue is because it removes the obstacles to the main game. Because most of what we do, we do in autopilot. So... Step three is to help people upgrade their inattentive habits to attention-enhancing ones. And that's really about trying to get people to deal with autopilot better. So habits determine most of what we do, and most of them have come about by default, and they have inattention already built in. So we need people to see the inattention, that's step one, uh, in order for them to convince themselves that they need to change to something that's safer, uh, if they're not going to change, it's going to be because they were rushing, frustrated or fatigue. So we deal with that in step two in order to put them in the best position 
to be able to change their habits to attention enhancing ones in the third session that, that we run. And of course, when you do these things, and leadership is exceptionally important, that leaders change behavior effectively when they, uh, and this was sort of shared with me by an Indigenous elder, and he kind of was explaining parenting to me, but kind of it also applies to, to leadership in general. Three-step process, know the way, show the way, go the way. And the way that we use it, and I've seen, a, I've seen my fair share of leadership programs, and most of them are pretty good, but they do tend to focus on the conscious decisions that people make, not so much on things like habits. So know the way to achieve effective change. And that's really very much about understanding the origins or what or how behavior originates. It's mostly about the subconscious, not so much about the conscious mind. Show the way is about what we need to do to enable effective change. And go the way is about to change personally. So we've done enough about know the way and sort of the subconscious and that kind of stuff. So I'm gonna move along to show the way. So we have a tool which is called the, um, sorry, let me just have a look here, a coach. So it's a coaching process for frontline supervisors that helps them ask the right questions in the right way at the right time. And it's about ensuring the person has identified their attention disruptor uh, and assist them to improve dealing with it. Because doing the training is one thing, but what we say to people is that nothing will change based on what you learn here today. Everything will change based on what you do with it. So frontline supervisors are key to help people continue that process outside of the training. The other way is, you know, what people see leaders do. We say, don't ask anyone else to do something you are not currently doing yourself. because for us, we define leading as going first and make sure that you share your successes, your challenges and any solutions you have experienced along the way. Uh, because if you're in it and you're sort of in the journey, then most people are more likely to join you. When we do that, when that gets done properly, these are the kind of results that, that you can get. Now we know it works in a sustainable way because it goes over a few years. And remember, this is a no blame, no fault process. The only thing we're doing here is we're teaching people what the causes of inattention are and what they can do to be more attentive. But, you know, and that's what normally tends to happen, sort of figures along those lines. But every once in a while, we get one of these and we scratch our heads and think, well, why did that happen? Well, a lot of those happen when frontline supervisors changes take place, because if the stuff between the training sessions doesn't happen, people don't practice the new habits and it doesn't take them long to return to old habits. So sometimes we get involved with clients and we sort of help them get back on track. So what I wanna do now is I want you to sort of step back and think about the percentage of work incidents that are involved in attention for you. So Sarah, can I get you to run the second poll, please? Yes, just a moment. Just having a little problem finding that. Um, oh, here we go. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So what percentage of workplace incidents involve inattention? So if you had to have a choice, if you had to have a, a guess of what that might be for your workplace, what would it be? Is it less than 30%? Is it about 50%? 
80% or 90% plus. Because we've done this with about 30 different organizations, or at least 30 now, a few more, um, and we get pretty consistent results. Okay, we'll just give it about um, five more seconds. Okay, no worries. So sometimes what happens is that people don't, if, if there is a hazard that was involved in the incident, and it always is, or there's a system deficiency, sometimes people don't write down the attention disruptors. But if you go back and ask a few questions, what you end up finding out is that the attention disruptor was in there. So what were the results? Okay, so most people think that it's at least 80%, which is what we find. Where's the thing? Okay, close. So what we find is that anything between 81 and 100%. So for most organizations, when they go back and they look at their incident reports, now there's always a hazard because somebody got hurt. Um, sometimes there's a, there's a system deficiency, sometimes a lack of supervision, other things get identified. If they look for the four attention disruptors, in at least four out of five incidents, they tend to appear. Those organizations that have done it with us and have given us the results, the average is 93.7. So let me also sort of ask you a different question, and we'll run a poll on this one as well. What I want you to do is I want you to think about the corrective actions for those incidents that you had. Where do you think that most of them land? Is it in the first column, fix the environment and or improve the system? Is it in the second column, it's getting people to think more about safety, or is it managing the attention disruptors better? So if you had to guess, which one would you think most corrective actions land in? We've also found that the answers to these are sort of fairly consistent when people go and have a look, and it gives them a good indication of what they believe the cause might be. So do we have any answers yet, Sarah? Yeah, just one short, a couple more seconds. Okay. Yeah, we have got lots of answers. Okay, I'll show now. Okay, interesting. Interesting. If you go and look at the actual sort of corrective actions, because that's what we've done and what, what sort of organizations have, we've actually sort of found that it's slightly more skewed. And it's more skewed that much. So what we find is we find that the majority of the corrective actions associated with an incident fall into this fix the work environment or improve the system, eliminate the hazard, train people, improve the system. Sometimes it's about getting people to think more about safety. Uh, uh, hardly any time it's about managing the attention disruptors. Now, now, sometimes people say to them, you know, slow down, calm down, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and that sounds like you're having an impact, but that doesn't help very much at all. That's been our experience. So if you think about the fact that four out of five incidents involve the attention disruptors, and when you look at the corrective actions, it's a very, very small percentage that actually sort of put something down there that's meaningful you can see the massive mis mismatch. And we're leaving so much of the opportunity for improvement on the table. And what we do is we help clients plot the best path in order to get more corrective actions into that last column. 
and we try and help them navigate it as efficiently as possible. So what we know for a fact is that the same old thinking, same old results. So we've gone back and we've looked at brain science in order to try and get a different perspective of why incidents take place. Now, in conclusion, um, what I sort of like to leave you with is a few thoughts. Now, the first thought is that I think that it is important to make use of brain science in safety because being human is a universal concept. We're human first. You know, nationality, language, even culture, they're overlays. And I'm not suggesting that overlays don't play a role, but if we don't understand the fundamental drivers of human behaviour, we're likely to get an incomplete picture or the wrong picture of what causes incidents. And then we waste our precious resources. And safety over the last 40 years has been stuck on three things, fix the work environment, improve the system, or get people to think more about safety. And up until 10 years ago, that was all we thought we had, but now we know better. If we're serious about safety, we need to use everything at our disposal to try and improve. We need a whole of brain approach that engages leadership in order to help people go from habits within attention to attention enhancing habits. Because at the moment, we're missing a piece and it's quite a significant piece um, according to what brain science has measured. So I've written a book about the role of subconscious in safety. There's more in the book, but only if you want it. There's also a podcast, Safety Frontiers, and I talk more about the issues that I've spoken about before. There's more in the podcast, but only if you want it. Now, I post regularly on LinkedIn, so if you're interested in keeping abreast of some of the things that we're thinking about and, and our latest thinking, then feel free to send me uh, an invite to connect. Now, Sarah. I might hand it back to you so that you can sort of let me know what questions have been asked and I'll do my best to answer them. Just being reminded that I'm muted. Thank you for that, Christian. That was very interesting. Um, we don't have any questions at the moment, but inevitably we will. Um, there were some comments in the chat um, all along, so that's great. Um, I'm sure people have been reading those. Um, uh, somebody Nabi said that when it becomes habit to behave unsafely, we stop thinking safe, we get stuck someday and we'll get an accident. Um, so I have put in the chat also a link to a webinar survey if you want to contribute. That's basically just finding out um, what you thought about today is too long, too short, also what you want to hear about in future, that's always helpful. Um, we want to try and find um, topics that you really want to learn more about. Um, Mary said, thank you very much. Great information, um, Christian. And um, same with Beth. Thanks so much. Great presentation. Claire, excellent presentation. Fantastic work, Christian. I knew you were good, Christian, when I saw you at the MindSafe. Safe. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there is a question now. I'll get back to the uh, praise in a minute. Um, Anonymous, you've mentioned brain science research supports the intervention. What sources material are you drawing from? So during the presentation, if you go back, when I talk about the brain science associated with rushing and frustration, there is a reference there. When I talk about fatigue, there's a reference there. And when I talk about autopilot, there is, there is a reference there. So brain science is... It's early days for brain science. I think the first meeting for 
the Brain Science Society, whatever whatever that was, was in 2001. Uh, and initially, a lot of the brain science was to try and understand things that were abnormal, like HDHD and, and, and a whole bunch of um, uh, brain sort of illnesses, if you like. Um, but these days, more and more, we're just trying to understand how the brain functions. So those are the references that I used originally. Um, and, the, and the information that I presented to you came from those references. But there's more and more all the time, even to the point now that I'm finding it difficult to get through all the scientific papers. And I pick and choose uh, in order to be able to, to try and work out what else do I need to understand in order to make this as, as effective as possible. Because that's really what we're on about. We're, we want to understand how the brain works in order to be able to help people be more attentive. Okay. Um, all right. The the other comments. Um, thank you for this. I have not come across brain science associated with WHS previously. Very thought provoking. Thank you. Um, and Sandy also said definitely thought provoking. So and that's what we want to share. Um, so that's great that um, people are now thinking in a different way or other options. So thank you, Christian. Um, I have put a link also to the Academy homepage. You can check out um, the recording for this webinar will be on there later today and the podcast, so you can share that and the slides and also any upcoming webinars. Um, Rob says, love this approach, not blame, but based on understanding and taking control of your actions for safety. Often we can't find the root cause as it appears as in, in attention. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so Christian, um, it looks to me like we have to have you back one day as well. All right, I'd be happy for that to happen. Follow, follow up. Um, so thank you very much for that. And um, the link will be in the email too, to your website. Um, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, all right, so um, everyone have a great rest of the week and we'll um, see you next week. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye, see you. Bye-bye.